You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the president of Wiley Education Services, Todd Zipper. Hello, this is Todd Zipper, the host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Ted Mitchell, president of American Council on Education, the coordinating body for higher education institutions in the United States. Ted has a lifetime of work in higher education as a professor, dean, college president, trustee, and U.S. Undersecretary of Education in the Obama administration. The key takeaways from my discussion. First, we can expect the Biden administration to focus on affordability, accountability, and opportunities for students that have been marginalized. Second, typically, when the economy gets worse, people go back to school, especially with community college and adult learners. It appears that the pandemic generally cause the opposite reaction, negatively impacting enrollments. Third, the student debt crisis is largely at the undergraduate level. Potential solutions should address bringing student loan debt back into the bankruptcy equation, accountability by institutions, especially for-profits, and improving completion rates. Fourth, digital credentialing will change the grammar of higher ed significantly. Traditional higher ed will badge and certify learners in a way they haven't in the past. Fifth, Within their mission, institutions need to look to the right at employers, which allows students to take what they understand in the classroom and directly apply in new ways. And lastly, most institutions are more local and can leverage investments from the big MOOC and platform players to bring down costs and drive better outcomes. Welcome to the Educated Guest. So Ted, let's just jump right into it. You have been in higher ed your entire adult life. Can you talk about what inspired you to pursue a career in this industry? Yeah, you know, from the very beginning, um, I've been really passionate about the way education can and should serve to equalize opportunity in America. And I think that that's key to the promise that uh, we made in 1776 to create an equal democracy, and it's a promise that we need to live up to. And schools, whether they're K-12 or, or higher education, are really the key, I think, uh, to making that happen. That's great. And, and, and talking about our democracy, let's talk about the Biden administration and how education could change in the coming years. Given your experience and what you know um, from being on the inside, what do you think are the administration's major objectives specifically around higher ed? It's a great question, and we've been you know, working hard with them, and they've been you know, really open to a lot of comment and input from higher education institutions and policymakers from inside and outside. So I think that there are three. Number one is to make sure that higher education as a whole is affordable. And so you see that in the increase that's being proposed in the Pell Grant program. You see that in the free community college proposal. And you see that in some uh, nuts and bolts work that uh, the administration is doing to encourage states to invest more in higher education. So I think, and we'll come back to that. So I think that that's one, is affordability. Number two is accountability. They have been working for a long time. When President Biden was Vice President Biden, he worked uh, very closely uh, with the Department of Education to create sort of new standards for accreditation to give accreditors more authority over who has access, so which institutions have access to federal financial aid money. So things like completion, persistence, the debt to earnings ratios to make sure that students are getting a degree that will help them pay off their student debts. I think that that accountability is going to be the second pathway for 
for the administration. And then third has to do with this issue that I I started with, which is um, equity and, and equality. The administration is very clear that it wants to create opportunities for uh, students who have been marginalized, whether those are African-American, black students, uh, Hispanic students, LGBTQ students, tribal uh, colleges and and, uh, native students. And so whether it's through direct assistance to institutions that educate a disproportionate number of those students or civil rights legislation that will help those students uh, get the education they deserve. Can we talk about accountability for a second? Because I really liked you highlighting that. When I think about accountability, I'm thinking about, you know, the retention, the graduation rates, but also these employability outcomes, right? You mentioned debt to earnings ratio. How hard is that or how easy is that to track? Because it seems kind of hard to to now a student leaves that school and now you have to find out what they're doing, what's their job title, what's their earnings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Todd. One of the peculiarities of our of our system is that we do not have a database that allows you, me, or the federal government to track a student from, say, high school through college uh, into employment. That continuous, uh, we, in term of art, is a student unit record doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because Congress says it can't. So we really are left to cobbling things together piecemeal. When I was in the department, we uh, developed a a memorandum of understanding with the uh, with the Treasury Department that allowed us for the first time to look at earnings rates of graduates of different colleges and universities. And that became the basis of the college scorecard, which does allow you to do that. But as you know well, and we've talked about before, getting a, a degree in religious studies from UCLA is not the same thing as getting a degree in electrical engineering from UCLA. And so the next frontier is to actually be able to get to that program level of granularity. But bottom line is it's a it's a it's piecework. Yes. And and the cost of that degree is most likely the same, which is possibly part of the problem here. Right. And so then you have interesting conversations about return on investment and what that looks like. But we're we're getting much better at being able to look at, first of all, graduation rates and then employment rates and salaries at the three-year mark out of college and the 10-year mark out of college. And what's one of the things that's interesting is that the biggest discrepancies occur at that three-year mark where the label on the degree really matters. But by 10 years, those start to smooth out. And liberal arts graduates, for example, uh, catch up with their peers in engineering and, and the sciences. Well, I think you definitely set us on the right course here around the accountability metrics. So hopefully we'll make progress because I think that will help to course correct a lot of the programs and institutions that maybe aren't steering students in the right direction. Let's shift gears for a second and talk about enrollments. I just read the other day that Purdue University had its largest enrollment ever in the fall, over 10,000 freshmen, 50,000 overall. So things are going good for them, hearing similar trends with other top tier schools. We also know that from last year, community colleges were probably the hardest hit in the fall of last year, and, and it looks like probably the fall again. What are you guys seeing at ACE, at American Council on Education, and, and how do you think that trend is playing out? Yeah, and just to, to remind everybody, uh, the American Council on Education is the umbrella organization for higher ed. So we represent two-year, four-year, public, private, from the smallest uh, college to the, to the largest. So we have this wonderful vantage point where we can look at those trends over the hills and mountains of higher ed. I think that we were surprised 
at the growth in applications and enrollments in the, as you say, the, the upper tier of, of higher education. And uh, people are still trying to figure out what that is all about. I think that a lot of it has to do with the growth of the test optional movement, where I think some people who, lots of, lots of individuals who felt that they didn't have a shot at a Purdue, for example, said, well, with, with it being test optional, I still have a good case to make and I'm going to make it. So I think that that's uh, that's been that's been going on. I think at the other end, um, I think it's exactly the mirror image of that. I think that the pandemic has screwed up what is a normal economic trend. Normally, when the economy goes south, community college enrollments go up because it's a way for people to skill up and get get ready for for a job while they're while they're unemployed. I think that the pandemic uh, took the air out of that and gave people a sense that this was an economy that uh, was just not going to come back and there was nothing on offer that would enable them to really emerge as employable in the job market. One of the reasons why I think community colleges are doubling down on the work they're doing with employers to make very strong connections between the work that happens in a community industry and the education that is produced by a community college. Talking about the pandemic, colleges and universities received billions of dollars, from what I understand, like many other industries, to kind of get through this this dark period. Now that we're kind of coming out of it, how are these institutions, how have they spent the money? Is it leading to some longer-term positive change? Is there any understanding, accounting of it right now? What, do you, what are you seeing from your end? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the right question. It'll take a while to untangle this, not only in higher ed, but in, but in K-12 as well. We were the beneficiaries, we in higher education, of you know, a little bit over $70 billion of relief money from the federal government, and every dollar of that has been important. Half of it, by law, Half of it was spent immediately on the financial needs of students. And so institutions used the FAFSA form, Pell eligibility. It was the financial aid office on steroids as they worked to provide checks to students so that they could pay their bills and make ends meet. Another part of it, and so then we're talking about the half that was sort of devoted to institutional recovery. A lot of it went to pay for sort of institutional infrastructure. So think about a Southern Illinois university whose dormitories were suddenly empty. They weren't charging students for their dorm rooms, but they had to pay the interest on the loans that built the buildings. They still needed to keep them upright. The electricity bill needed to be paid. So a ton of the money went into paying for expenses that are incurred regardless of student participation to kind of fill in that income gap. And then the third place, and this answers your question, I hope, the third place is looking at primarily student needs and what could institutions do to make it possible not only for students to survive, but to continue their education. Cal State University, for example, the largest four-year university in the country, spent millions of dollars providing laptops to students, creating hotspots throughout the communities of California for students to be able to participate, purchased uh, headphones like the ones that we're wearing. And I think that that really did two things. First of all, it demonstrated that the digital divide is real. And two, that if universities and colleges are going to move to a more distributed learning environment, they needed to provide uh, equipment for that. And they did. 
So that gives the Cal State campuses, for example, the opportunity to continue that and to have a robust hybrid learning experience where some courses are online, some courses are in person, and everybody can do both. Yeah, that, that spurs a lot for me. And and I want to jump to student debt, just because I'm, I'm thinking also about what happened during the pandemic was a moratorium on payments of student debt. So we already had a huge issue going on in society where we had $1.7 trillion of debt, kept going up, tuition kept going up. You also have this, whether it's right or wrong, this sort of growing sentiment around the value of an education, which every other day it seems like a report comes out saying it's valuable, it's not valuable. I'm trying to wrap my hands around this, but help us understand this this debt crisis that we're in. First off, there's a growing feeling that we're going to write this debt off, or at least parts of this debt off. It's hard to take an entitlement away from people. Like right now, people aren't paying back their loans or paying their interest. These are just real issues in the economy that have to be worked through. So we're in sort of a tricky situation right now, short term around this debt not getting paid back, but that's okay because the government's allowing it. We also have this vicious cycle of tuition just going up every year, people taking on more debt than than maybe the value of that degree leads to. So help us make sense of this, if it's possible at all. Yeah, it's complicated, but, but I'll give it a shot. So when we look at the $1.7 trillion, first thing to do is to separate it, undergraduate debt and graduate debt. And I think that's important because in a way, an undergraduate degree, whether that's an associate's degree or a four-year degree, has become sort of table stakes for the new economy. And so it's it's important really for everybody to be involved in that marketplace. We can talk about the differential value in, in a moment, but undergraduate debt accounts for not even half of the $1.7 trillion. The bulk of the 1.7, the 53, 54%, I'm not, it's not 75%, but a little over half is graduate student debt. Those are doctors, those are lawyers, those are MBAs. Those are people who are getting master's degrees in their in their disciplines, and they're making a choice to invest there. I don't want to say that it's irrelevant or that they are not living without pain, because I'm sure that many of them of them are. But I think it's a different it's a different social problem than the problem of undergraduate debt. So let's focus on undergraduate debt. The average debt that a, a graduate leaves an undergraduate leaves with is about thirty four thousand dollars which is different from the $200,000 debts that we read about in the headlines. Those are largely graduate students. Those are largely professional degrees, and those will largely be paid off. And the numbers demonstrate that. So let's look at the next thing, which is who defaults on their student loans, which I would use as a proxy for the people who are really in dire straits, who are being punished by their debt. They aren't the people on the graduate side of the equation. Graduate default rates are remarkably low. Default rates are highest among two populations of undergraduates. One, those who don't finish. You know, so they've gotten debt, but they don't have the bump in employment that the degree will give them. So they're stuck halfway across this debt river. The second are individuals whose degrees are from a for-profit institution. And so last time I looked, for-profit enrollments accounted for 11% of the enrollment in higher education and 40% of the defaults. So if you want to solve the problem going forward, you solve a couple of problems. One is how can you make it easier for students who are in trouble, the defaulters, 
to get rid of their debt. And I think that this is where social policy lags reality. You can't discharge your debt in bankruptcy. You can a car loan, you can a business loan, you can a mortgage. We need to bring the, the student loan back into that equation so that all those people who've defaulted, the majority of them, can use bankruptcy in the same way that they would use bankruptcy to get back on their feet with any other borrowing instrument. We talked accountability earlier. We need to encourage those for-profit institutions to deliver what they promise and to create degree programs that give people earnings that will allow them to pay off their debt. That's this debt to earnings ratio that I mentioned earlier that will be a part of the Biden uh, regulatory package. And then finally, and I guess most importantly, we have a completion problem in higher education. A hundred percent of people who sign up to go to college expect to complete it. 50% do. That doesn't work. And so we really need to focus as a field, as an industry on completion. Let's jump into accountability because that really resonates with me. So punishing, let's say, the bad institutions after the fact sort of feels like it, it misses the point, right? How do we how do we get it up front where they get the, the real-time feedback that, hey, you're not, this isn't working, your product? <laughs> right, right. So I think that there, there are a couple ways. Let me go back a half a step. I think that one of the things that is possible and will become more possible with the Biden administration is that when institutions are, are shown to be defrauding their students, making promises that they can't keep, then not only is the institution punished going forward by not being able to offer federal financial aid, but there is redress for students. So even in that case, the government can reach back and forgive the loans of students who have been in those situations. So, so that's one. Two is, I mentioned accreditors earlier, accreditation is the major gatekeeper for higher education institutions. If they are accredited, if they are in good standing, then they can be eligible to distribute federal financial aid to students which then pays their tuition. So that's really high stakes. If you're not accredited, you don't have access to that pool of money. And so we represent, as I mentioned, just about everybody in American higher education. And we strongly believe that accreditors need to get tougher on accrediting institutions, essentially disallowing them from access to the public, to the public trough. And then finally, and I think that in some ways this may be as important as, as accreditation, is that public accountability is something we need to put more emphasis on. So this was the idea in the Obama administration behind the college scorecard. Provide parents and prospective students with information about the relative value of institutions and let them make their choices and let them punish institutions that aren't doing the right thing. So there's a, there's a marker in uh, the, the college scorecard that I, I like. It's terrifying, but I like it. It measures the earnings of a graduate of an institution against the earnings of a high school graduate in the same geography. So there are institutions in this country whose graduates don't earn as much as a high school graduate. And making, helping people understand that and make choices around that in the long term, I think, is going to have a corrective effect. Yeah, it seems like the college scorecard is is just a great step in the right direction around like a consumer reports type of model that exposes actually what's happening on the ground. 
Let me ask a question around this this new emerging model in the private sector around funding income share agreements. And a lot of it's been around boot camp models, alternative credential models, but also Purdue University, to go back to that name, they they created a program, Back a Boiler. It's been slow to get adoption from universities, and it seems to be more supplemental around the degree. But is this is there something there around aligning incentives? Could the government come in and structure the loans more like ISAs? What do you what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I have, I have friends who are who are deeply involved in the ISA movement, and I think that it I think there is something there. Whether it's an ISA industry or whether it points the way for new kinds of government programs, I think remains remains to be seen. I think that the one of the reasons that ISAs have not carried a whole lot of favor in the higher ed community is because of the one of the basic propositions is that if I'm an investor in an ISA funding Ted Mitchell's education, I want some kind of return from it. And my return prospects are greater if Ted Mitchell majors in electrical engineering than in sociology. And so there's a worry of academic redlining where these these funding opportunities would be available to some, but not all. And that's hard for institutions of higher education to, to manage. And it's it's kind of the same query that would be asked if we said we were going to you know, charge a ton more for those engineering degrees than for a sociology degree within a, within a single institution. That probably wouldn't work real well over time. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. So sticking with the the theme of, I call it education beyond the degree or micro-credentials, alternatives type of models, we're seeing the emergence of these mega platforms or even marketplaces. You've got the Coursera's, edX, FutureLearn, Udemy, even Chegg, you could argue, is in this camp. What do you think this means for higher education? These platforms are, whether they're using universities in a lot of cases, great brands, great instructors to build these platforms that are direct to consumer. How are you thinking about this as representing this larger, the higher education community in terms of, are they good? You know, I I think about, and you've been talking all about what I call the iron triangle of higher education, outcomes, accessibility, and affordability. Are they driving these three things? It's interesting. So I'm, I'm bullish, largely bullish about, about these opportunities I think that we have yet to achieve the economies that are to be had in these kinds of uh, third-party external external providers where a little bit like uh, pharmaceuticals, the upfront costs of putting together a really first-class learning opportunity for students is significant. And that amortized over a significant period of time, sort of the marginal, the marginal cost drops pretty easily. I think that benefit to higher education is both access and affordability. And it has to do with, again, being able to do higher education, not within the institutional logic of a brick and mortar campus, but within the logic of a learner's daily life. I think we're learning, and again, Todd, you and I talked about this, the new average student is 26 years old and 60% of them work full time and a lot of them have kids or they take care of adult parents. So you're really looking at a student population that can't go to class between 10 and 2, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. They really need to have their instruction available to them in different modalities. That's where I think that this is going to be particularly helpful. It's actually going to broaden the market of accessible students for institutions. It's going to broaden 
the curriculum that they're able to offer as they establish partnerships with some of these producing entities. And it's, it's going to eventually lower the cost of a total degree by combining the low marginal cost uh, online instruction with some of the regularly priced in-person instruction. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm largely bullish, but I think getting to the, the last mile of, of that career outcome or the life outcome that that learner is looking for, I think is largely unknown at this point, especially when they, when a lot of these platforms talk about millions and millions of learners, it's hard to imagine it's had that impact on, on those iron triangle of, of outcomes. Let's stick on innovation for a second. I recently interviewed Manoj Cuddy of Greenlight, and we had a very interesting conversation about digital credentials. I know Greenlight received a grant from ACE, so I'd love to hear your thoughts, A, on, on digital credential movement and how that might evolve in, in the higher education community. It's very exciting. It's a little bit scary. It's a little wild westy out there in in terms of credentials and credentials and badges. But I, I do think that it is going to change the grammar of uh, of higher education significantly. So that instead of talking about degrees or at least only degrees, we're going to be talking about skills and competencies that are badged or or credentialed. Um, uh, in addition, so I think the you know the green the green light project uh, is, was and is a really remarkable example of the way in which student learning can be captured in a badge or a certificate. It can be stored in a central location and then distributed as the student sees fit, as they seek employment, as they seek to transfer credit to another institution. It becomes a part of their lifelong learning record. It reduces tons of inefficiencies where. People have to call their college and get a transcript and you know, verify that and, and so on. So I think both in terms of what it measures and how it's stored and transmitted, there's a, a, lot, a lot on offer in, in digital credentials. That said, I think too often people dismiss traditional higher education in the world of digital credentials. Well, okay, that, that's going to do it. That'll be done. We'll, we'll not do that in traditional higher education. There's a, an important movement to look at traditional coursework and ask the question about that coursework, say, all right, what are, what are the skills people are learning in that class? How do they demonstrate that? So that the course becomes not just a record of what you learned in Econ 151, but your analytic skills, your ability to uh, master a certain amount of uh, economic literature, and those then become badges that exist simultaneous with a, with a course. So I think that traditional higher education is going to be able to badge and certify a lot of learning that takes place that they haven't had to in the, in the past, but now will. I want to tie together a few concepts that we talked about today. One is the unacceptable completion rates, like you talked about earlier, 50 plus percent. The type of student, the more adult learner working, the notion that that individual most likely has a lot of transfer credits. We talked about this the other day that what we see is bringing in you know 37 credit hours before they, they're moving from one institution to the next. And then these digital credentials. So we know that we have a major problem today in higher ed around transfer credits. We know these students are moving from one institution for a whole bunch of reasons. Their life changes, they're moving, they drop out for a while. Talk to me about the transfer system and, and how we could potentially solve some of those issues that just keep popping up. Yeah. We uh, at ACE, we, we a year ago mounted a national task force on transfer of credit. 
and we brought people together from every kind of institution. And it was remarkable because uh, lots of higher education discussions, people can't agree on the time of day or the weather outside. This was one of those where everybody within five minutes, their head, just as yours and mine do, were nodding up and down saying, this is a problem and it has to be fixed. And so we then spent a year trying to figure out how to how to do it. You know, it's simple and it's impossible at the same time. The simple is the state of Florida has created a system where whether you're in a community college or the university, the courses are all numbered the same. The catalog descriptions are the same. And by and large, the syllabi are the same because faculty from the different systems have gotten together and they've said, this is what introductory psychology is going to look like for the next few years. So think about the problems that they've solved. They've gotten faculty from different institutions to agree on a common syllabus and a common set of outcome objectives. That really can happen only locally. And what the Greenlight Project showed us is that you can have that locally but then you can transmit kind of like the transitive property of mathematics. If, if you know, you and I agree and you and somebody else agree, then maybe I can agree with that other person. I think that that's where you get the, the simple, which is get everybody to agree through the impossible, which is to create a clearinghouse of credit transferability then allows there to be this kind of a massive network of institutions that share information about who transfers what that will make uh, make transferability better, won't solve the problem. And I frankly think we're never going to solve the problem for everybody, and we shouldn't focus on it. We should focus on solving the problem in the institutions where people transfer at great numbers, where most of the students go. I'm not going to worry myself if Yale doesn't take a chemistry course from the community college in New Haven. Right. Pick the low-hanging fruit there. So switching gears to to talk about more of the employer perspective, which is such an important perspective in, in higher ed, I recently interviewed Ryan Craig, who introduced this concept of higher education needing to become more employer down versus education up, or said differently, right to left versus left to right. What do you think about this potential evolution of employers and universities locking arms in ways that feels a lot more like the apprenticeship model, honestly, the way I think about it. What are your thoughts here? I agree with Ryan that within their missions, institutions need to look to the right. And I think that here's where I find community colleges to lead the pack. Community colleges are closely tied to their local economies. They're closely tied to employers. Uh, for a long time, they have been looking to employers to help provide resources, whether those are intellectual resources or physical resources to help create bespoke programs for the growing for the growing industries in their neighborhoods. And I think that we what we have learned from that experience is that that doesn't lead to a perversion of the academic enterprise. It doesn't lead to a, lead to a vocationalization of higher education. It actually leads to an opportunity for students to take what they are learning in the classroom and apply it in a real world sense. I'm gonna get really abstract for a moment, but this is what John Dewey told us what was good education back at the turn of the 20th century, that you learned better when you were learning through experience. And so that's really what we're asking employers to do is to generate for us and identify for us 
experiences that are relevant to their economic well-being, but can help students understand what they're learning in in new ways. Yeah, you said something that rung for me around their communities, and I increasingly find that the higher ed institutions, the community colleges, the regional schools that really know their communities, the employers, the citizens, they seem to have such a great symbiosis there. And so going back to the the question above about these huge platforms that by nature probably can't be local, it'll be interesting to see how that ultimately plays out that dynamic. Yeah. And what's, to, to comment on that, I think that this is where, I mean, what you just said is so important because I think that it, it suggests a competitive advantage and a differentiator for local institutions that the big platforms can't aspire to. So what if they did that and focused on that and then augmented heavy investment on that local work with intellectual assets that are more national, international, global, however you want to put it. I know when I was the president of a small liberal arts college in Los Angeles, I could do LA all day, but I was never going to be able to offer a course in advanced Mandarin. But if I could do both, how cool would that be? Exactly. And we might be getting there. So we're going to close with two more questions. I think it's important we talk a little bit about COVID. You mentioned when we were talking the other day how consistently the mental health of students and faculty have been on the mind and the focus of presidents and their teams, even rather than the financials. You know, tell me more about this and, and what you're seeing. I think that, and it's, you know, it's interesting, we're talking a lot about mega platforms and delivery online. I think that we are learning that colleges are important places. They're important places in their communities. They're important places for students to to learn and grow. They're important places for staff to express their aspirations for who they want to be in the world. And all of that has come together in in COVID in in a kind of arm in arm sense that we're that nobody is going to do well if everybody doesn't do well. So I was just talking to a group of, of HR directors who you know, said really directly, look, if, if, if the staff of an institution isn't healthy, the students aren't going to be healthy. And that is really true. And I think, we're, I think we're, learning, we're learning that. I also think that we are learning the importance of human interaction. And whether that is face-to-face or Zoom face, uh, I think that the work that's being done in telemedicine and in tele-student health, I think we're learning in gobs that you can reach out to students um, in ways that ways that matter. Any thoughts on what we're going to keep or might jettison as a result of COVID? That's the trick question of the day, and I think that we're going to, you know, we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep a mix of in person and and uh, online instruction. I think we're going to keep things like uh, tele student help and telemedicine. I think we're going to keep student data systems that allow institutions to, to track what assignments students are doing, how well they're doing in those assignments, and to be able to reach out to them in a, in a more, more textured way. And, you know, I think, I think we're, going to, we're going to keep our eyes on uh, safety in ways that we haven't before. Well, Ted, thank you so much. I asked this last question of all my guests. Part of what we love about education is that we all have learning champions. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? This was the question that I worried the most about, Todd, because I knew you were going to ask it. You know, there, there are so many and you can't be in education without having kind of a, a, a sense of all of the people who pass through your, your life. Um, the most significant uh, educator in my life who was a learning champion 
uh, just passed away uh, just this last year. He's a professor of mine. And to give you a sense, he, he was my freshman advisor. He was the chairman of my dissertation committee, and he was the best man in my wedding. And it says it all right there. And, yeah. And for me, that's that really is what being a great educator is about. It's about taking somebody from where they start through their journey and having that be personal as well as professional. Well, Ted, thank you so much for being here on An Educated Guest. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to An Educated Guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley Education Services, please visit edservices.wiley.com.